The CFOs that get it, get it. The CFOs that don't, don't. Let's talk about the CFO, the Chief Financial Officer. There are two kinds of CFOs. One who's struggling to keep up, spreadsheets everywhere, manual processes. It takes weeks to close the books. The other kind is on top of their game. Automated reports, inventory, commerce, and HR flow into the financial model seamlessly. NetSuite is everything you need to grow all in one place. That's why NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system used by over 28,000 growing businesses. 93% of businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Head to netsuite.com slash c-suite for a special one-of-a-kind financing offer. That's netsuite.com slash c-suite. netsuite.com slash c-suite. This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Strategies to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. Don't you wonder how some companies are continuously more innovative, coming out with new products, staying ahead of the curve, and leading their competitors on a consistent basis? Don't you wonder what it is about those companies that make that happen? Well, maybe it's the culture of innovation that they create. And to describe that to us, Yoram Solomon. Dr. Solomon, welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you, Joel. Great to be here. Uh, We're doing just great here. Good. Well, welcome. Uh, Nice to have you. So uh, what is this uh, culture of innovation? I mean, you know, listen, everybody's got the fancy buzzwords for different things. Uh, Let's just understand what this is real quick. Well, you know, I'll I'll explain it through uh, really my experiences because I started as an innovator. I think you know that I published 22 patents of books and articles and all. And I was wondering, trying to understand what is the, uh, how does innovation really come about? And while initially I thought this was all about processes, the processes that you use or the technologies that you adopt, what I found in my, and this goes back to my PhD research uh, 11 that started 11 years ago and and additional original research I've done since then to find that if you want to have a company that is innovative, the bottom line is have a culture of innovation. And I can break down the culture of innovation to three simple elements. Two of them are vertical on the uh, supervisor or leader employee. One of them is horizontal. The vertical one, a leader needs to provide his employees or her employees autonomy, autonomy to try things. From an employee uh, standpoint, the employee needs to be accountable and be willing to take risk. On a horizontal level, within a team, you need to have the ability to conduct constructive disagreement. Those are the three elements that constitute, in my opinion, a culture of innovation. If you have those, you will have innovation in your company. So this is, uh, all right, so this is going to be great. So uh, listen, I've been in a lot of different environments. Uh, Some are more successful uh, at at innovating and coming up with ideas and solving problems. So a lot of it has to do with the ability of the leadership uh, encouraging their people to make mistakes or allowing them to make mistakes or not punishing them for make mistakes? Is that kind of where we're going here? Uh, exactly. And, you know, the, the funny part of it is that when, when I ask leaders, when I conduct a uh, workshop and I, I ask leaders three questions, 
And one of them is, what do you do as a leader when one of your employees comes to you and says, I tried something without your permission and failed? It'll be, you'll be amazed by how many people, how many leaders answer with, don't ever do that again. This will cost you. Uh, next time, ask first where the real only good answer that gives you a culture of innovation and therefore innovation is, okay, you failed, what do we do next? What, what's your next move? The, you need that employee to leave your office thinking, well, that wasn't the end of the world. Uh, I, you know, my leader was acceptable to fail, was receptive to failure. And that is one of those three critical elements. You know, <clears throat> Most people uh, just aren't like that. They're, they're just not. They're, they're more like the first guy. They're not like the second guy. You know, they're, they're um, don't ever do that again. That was really insubordinate. Uh, you didn't have permission. And it, it's almost like, uh, you know, that's the way we treat children is, you know, you, you step out of line. You were bad. They're going to hit your knuckles with a ruler. I, whatever they're going to, they're going to punish you somehow. Uh, and that just doesn't encourage people to uh, try anything. It just makes them sit in their, in their office and just do whatever their limited responsibilities are. So, I mean, I totally get it that if you want to have this kind of culture, you absolutely have to give people a little bit of leash. That's right. And, uh, you know, the, the other question is how far off the leash? And well, that, that's, the question, that, that's the question I have is how much leash? I mean, you know, it's one thing to fail. It's another thing to, uh, you know, go overboard. So where, where's the range? Well, that's an excellent question, Joel. Uh, the, uh, Teresa Amabile, who's a professor, I, I read a lot of her stuff. I actually incorporated a lot of that. I referenced a lot of it when I did my own uh, original research, uh, for my PhD. Uh, she had a great definition of what kind of autonomy are we talking about. And she said, the autonomy is not the autonomy to choose which mountain you're going to climb. This is something we need to agree, with, uh, agree on within the company or within our team. It's the autonomy to decide how you're going to climb that mountain. That is the autonomy that you need. So, you know, this is not about, hey, Joel, why don't you do whatever you want to do? No, you know what your part is here but I'm just not going to micromanage you and tell you what to do every step of the way. I'm going to have to trust you that, that I hired you because you, you are a creative person. I hired you because you're a trustworthy person. So I need to let you uh, decide how you're going to climb that mountain. You know, an interesting thing, I have to share this. One of my more recent uh, research studies that I've conducted, I asked this question. What is the most important quality for you in other people? What, what's the most important quality? And uh, I, I received all kinds of qualities when I asked this as an open question, and then I narrowed it down to five. And six types of people, that's your boss, your employee, your peers or colleagues, a salesperson trying to sell you something, your government representative, and your spouse. And after narrowing it down, I had five different qualities that came to the top. One of them was your willingness to work hard, willingness to take risk, uh, trustworthiness, intelligence, and good looks. I know, sound weird, good looks, but uh, the scary part is 0.85% of my participants actually rank good looks as number one quality. Scary. But, you know, 
trustworthiness in this case uh, really popped up to the top with 60.8% or 60.7%, I'm sorry. 60.7% uh, said, or of all respondents said, trustworthiness was number one. And this was true for not all six types of people, only five of them. One of them, trustworthiness, was not even number one. Number one was willingness to work hard, and the type of person I asked was a leader. Leaders said that the number one quality in their employees is not trustworthiness, it's your willingness to work hard. Trustworthiness came 10% lower. And that's important because, uh, you know, Henry Ford said once, why is it that every time I ask for a pair of hands, they come with the brain attached? Joel, we're in 2019 and leaders still think that way. You know, uh, <laughs> let's go back to this uh, what versus how. I, I, I always think about what versus how. Um, I love that description of it's not your job to figure out what mountain, but how you climb the mountain that we assign you uh, is up to you. That's right. And that's a, that is a wonderful distinction that really should help leaders to uh, really get the point made clear about how to direct their people. Strategically, the organization is going to determine what mountain, but the approaches, you know, you hire these people to be smart. And if you don't give them a little bit of latitude, uh, they're going to go somewhere where they can have some latitude. I mean, for sure. So I, I just, I love that, uh, that part about your, uh, your explanation. I don't totally, uh, you know, I, I don't totally get the research on, uh, you know, on these different, these different levels. I mean, you know, when you have talking about five different levels of people, uh, it starts to be a little bit hard to kind of kind of see it in your mind's eye. Give us a little more clarity about you know which of these types uh, ultimately uh, you know trust is the most important part. I mean, I, I just can't imagine that you can be anything anywhere. I mean, it's almost like a given, isn't? Isn't it like so basic that it's a given, or do we have to really talk about it? Oh no, we have to talk about it. That's, what's amazing is when, when I was working with clients initially, uh, they would hire me to come in and facilitate ideation workshops and help them come up with new ideas. And I did, and then I find that they don't really follow up and they don't continue to generate ideas. This is when I realized that we need to take a step back and say, the help that you need from me is not in generating ideas, it's first to create a culture of innovation. And, and then when I found that the fundamental factor or, or the foundation for a culture of innovation is trust. Every time I would sit down with a company and they said, oh, you know, we have those ideas. We need you to help us uh, define an innovation funnel so we can decide which ideas are better and which ideas are worse. After less than 20 minutes conversation, I, I get the executives to lower their heads and say, we have a trust problem in the company. You don't have an innovation problem. You have a trust problem. And so that's why, to me, everything goes back. You say that, that it's a given that, that you have to be trustworthy. But, heck, look at my, my study that says that when you ask a leader what's the most important quality in your employee and someone reporting to you, you got five of them. Fortunately enough, not too many of them uh, said good looks. But number one was willingness to work hard and 10% lower number two. So 48% said willingness to work hard, only 38% said trustworthiness. That means that if I don't trust you, if, if I don't care if I have to trust you or not, if you're trustworthy, that means I don't intend to trust you. And if I don't intend to trust you, I don't intend to give you autonomy. You know, the thing is that uh, if you don't trust somebody, 
no matter how hard they're working, you might not think they're even working on your deal. Maybe they, you think they're working on their own deal. You know, they're setting up their own company to go off and do their, you know, do their own thing or who knows what they're going to do. And, and the problem, the, the problem, this happens because when we hire people and, and, you know, I'm working with a couple of companies right now to define their hiring processes. If you think about how you hire people today, you hire them based on their technical skills, pretty much period technical skills. I need an SAP expert. I'm hiring an SAP expert. I need a software as a server, as a service expert. That's what I'm hiring. I don't try to hire. I don't put anywhere in the hiring process. Am I hiring a trustworthy person? And what I'm helping companies is realize that when you hire, you need to hire trustworthy people. Because All right. So wait, 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 wait. All right. So I've, I've heard uh, another very dear friend of mine talks about you have to hire ethical people, and which, which is a different thing. Ethics and trust is different. Uh, they probably intersect a little bit, but they're, they're different. So how do you measure what is a trustworthy person? So in other words, I come in the interview and say, trust me, I'm trustworthy. You know, the second that somebody says, trust me, it's like immediately your guard goes up and you don't want to trust them. <laughs> how do you determine who is a trustworthy person, uh, you know, before you hire them and start giving them responsibility? First of all, what I do is I ask them to uh, send those people to me so that I will evaluate them for the company. I charge $2,000. And what I do is I ask the person, can I trust you? If they say yes, I tell them, yeah, that's a trustworthy person. And that was, uh, <laughs> that was my cynicism. Uh, actually, you know, you laugh. Uh, you probably didn't expect this answer, but I, I do have a formula. Over the last several years, I developed a formula of how trust gets built and how can you define if someone is trustworthy or not. That formula has six factors in it, and they're broken into two parts. One of them is how do people, in, how do people behave during interactions? And the other is what do we know about this other person? And, and I call it context. So this is the contextual versus the transactional or interactional. If I talk about contextual, you said ethics. Ethics is actually part of it. So I break it down into three elements, the contextual part. Competence, shared values, and fairness or symmetry. So in under shared values, there are three types, there are three groups of elements. One of them is universal. Ethics is a universal value. And so if I know that you're an ethical person and I have ways to, to determine that you're an ethical person, even during an interview, the interview process, the specific questions that I'm gonna ask that would tell me if you're an ethical person or not, uh, I know that we have this value. But it really comes down to three elements. Competence, do I think you're a competent person? Shared values, do we share values, universal values, uh, individual values, and uh, interpersonal values, and uh, fairness or, or symmetry of our relationship, which is really something that uh, grows over time and, and is actually, again, contextual and structural within the organization. Yeah, but you know, it doesn't seem like any of those three things uh, necessarily uh, point to trustworthiness. Oh, they do. They they. The directly uh, point to trustworthiness. Listen, you could have shared. You could have shared values superficially. You could have bonding between you superficially, and then you find out later on that that the person is not trustworthy. So, you know, trust is a hard thing to figure out, and it's something that you learn about somebody over time, isn't it? 
Well, so this is, this is where I separate the two parts, the contextual part on one hand, which is the contextual part are the things that I know about you or think or perceive about you in between interactions. And then there's the transactional part. The transactional part, you're right, develops over time. And the, the simple way to explain it is because one of the three elements there is time. How much time did we spend? And by the way, here is another interesting thing. Uh, that, that would really help you or, or assess trustworthiness early on, not all time is made equal. The initial contact that you have or interaction or transactions that you have with the person have a much bigger impact on your ability to build trust than later ones. And, and I build that into the formula. Uh, so if I want to interview you or I want to get a sense of you, one of the first things that I would always recommend is have face-to-face. -face. This, is, this is not about resume. Don't let the resume start biasing you towards is this the right person or not. So if you're the hiring manager, I would actually let somebody else do the technical skill background, you know, references and all to the point where they say they meet the, the criteria, the technical criteria. I want you to meet him. You're going to meet that person for the first time. I want the first impression that you get to be a face-to-face -face impression. And by the way, believe it or not, uh, you're going to form an opinion within the first 30 seconds. And that opinion, for the most part, is going to be accurate. A uh, big part of it is going to be through... Uh, the, the intimacy of the, the conversation. So one of the things that, that I tell people is, uh, look, and this comes from uh, a research done by Albert Morabian back in the 60s. He published it in a book called The Silent Messages in 1971, where he coined the, the term 738-55 rule. So 7% goes through the, tone, uh, through the words, 38% through tone of voice, 55% through body language. Well, here's an interesting thing. Uh, I'll give you a tip here on uh, how do you assess credibility uh, of someone and how do you know if something is um, is above surface or below surface or if there's difference between what's above surface and below. Well, if you think about it, what do you think you have the most conscious effect on you, the words that you use, your tone of voice, or your body language. What do you have you the, use. the words you use? That's, that's consciously, that's where you have the strongest impact. Yeah. What do you think you have the strongest impact subconsciously? Your words, your tone of voice, or your body language? Probably tone of voice. Body language. Excellent. More well, on tone of voice? I, I, I only guess tone of voice because everybody yeah. can recognize tone of voice. Not everybody can read body language, but... I mean, I think body language is really strong, but I don't know that everybody can, can read it. You know, well, I'm, I'm not talking about reading it right now. What I'm talking about is uh, affecting it. So you affecting your own body language. You have a much more control over your words, less control over your tone of voice, even less control over your body language. However, remember this. When I read you, 55% of what I read subconsciously is your body language. So... I have the ability as an interviewer, just recognizing those differences, to tell whether what you say is what you mean. And that difference uh, would give, uh, would tell a lot about your, uh, uh, would tell a lot about your, uh, your trustworthiness, especially if you're aware of it. So let's, let's bring this back to culture of innovation. Why? Because, okay. because how does this affect the development of a company's culture of innovation? 
They got to hire good people. They got to hire the right people. They got to make sure that they have the certain technical skills and they have certain backgrounds. But what is, what is all the, put the package together and help us understand why does all of this impact the kind of culture they're going to have at the end of the day? Let's do that. I'm going to go back and say the three things that you needed to have a culture of innovation are one, supervisors giving autonomy, employees accountable and taking risks. Sorry. And uh, within a team, it's uh, your ability to conduct constructive uh, disagreement. Now, I'll break down constructive disagreement into three things, which are one, your, uh, your willingness to be vulnerable with me when we argue ask stupid questions, suggest stupid ideas. Two, my willingness to give you direct and honest feedback. And three, your receptivity to that kind of feedback. All three of those, plus as a supervisor, your willingness to uh, give me autonomy, plus as an employee, my willingness to take risks, all require trust. Without trust, you're not going to be willing to be vulnerable. You're not going to be willing to be, give me feedback. You're not going to be receptive to my feedback. As a boss, you will not give me autonomy because you don't trust me with that autonomy. And as your employee, I'm not going to be willing to take risk and be accountable because you are, uh, because I don't trust that that's not going to hurt me. So we connect the trust to culture. So those elements of a culture of innovation depend on trust, but, and this is what I do with organizations, so how do we build that trust? And as I said before, you build this trust through the interactions and things between interactions, some of them through the hiring process and through allocating people into specific teams, but the other is how do you conduct business within teams? So we have a trust issue. We gotta make sure that we're good at uh, trust. We understand that, the whole thing. Um, at some point, though, leaders have to be taught to be um, open-minded, and leaders have to be given autonomy by their leadership to allow for errors, allow for flexibility in a budget, uh, both time, a time budget, a financial budget, to make sure that you know, they're not going to be chastised for errors and other kinds of things. So, I mean, it really starts right at the top. Who's, who's teaching these people uh, that it's okay? Where does the training come from? Where does the spirit, the, the uh, enthusiasm, where does all of that come from? Does it just have to hire the right CEO and it trickles down? Or is there a process that makes it happen predictably? Well, actually, you asked who teaches them. I do. <laughs> That's what I do. I teach them how to do that. But uh, yes, I do take them through a process. Uh, I have so far, and, and this list is still being developed, I have 35 habits that, uh, and, and they vary between leaders, followers, uh, team members, and salespeople. Uh, how do you develop those habits? How do you track that you develop them? How do you develop that trust? Uh, I'm, I'm a big believer that every person can use those techniques. But, you know, there's, when I wrote a paper called 18 plus one uh, uh, factor, not, not factors, 18 plus one habits uh, or rules, I'm sorry, on how to build trust and innovation culture, the, the plus one is if you can't build trust, stop trying. At some point, you need to know that you stop trying. Uh, I always tell companies that the silver bullet is start with the management team, stop with the, start with the top leadership team for, for several reasons. One of them is this is the group that controls the, the resources. You know, if they don't trust you, you don't get resources. So it has to start with them. But the second thing is they serve another rule, and that is 
and I like to use the analogy of, you know, if you have a toddler and that toddler starts, learns how to walk, what's the next thing that they do? They start to run. What's the first thing that happens? They fall down. What's the first thing that they do that your toddler does after they fall down? What's the first thing that they do? They, they get up and they try again. No, they don't. They try, they cry. They, they try, they cry. They, they cry, no, all right. Even, even, that not, even that's not what they do. The first thing that they do, and, and, and most people miss that part, the first thing that they do is they turn around, they look at you, and they try to see, do I, am I supposed to cry or am I supposed to stand up? You know, that, that, that is, if, from a parenting point of view, that's exactly correct. And, and if the parent is all freaked out, the kid gets freaked out. And if that's the right. parent is like, it's not a big deal, the kid's like, it's not a big deal. And they, you're 100% right about that. So this is why it's so important that you start with the leadership team, because you know what? I, I'm not on the leadership team, so I'm looking up to my boss, to, to an executive in the company. Uh, something happened. Something happened wrong. I'm looking at this guy or, or gal, and I want to see how they respond. And if their response is, oh, crap, that, that was, we cannot do this. This cannot happen again. <laughs> you no, know, right now I'm reading the book, Bad Blood, uh, you know, the story of Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes. It's a captivating story, but, and, and I see different things than what others are seeing. But when I look at that book, when, when I read this book, what I read is how they reacted to everything that was happening and what their employees got out of it. Because uh, again, this goes back to uh, what happens if I failed? How, how do you react? So I, I'm a very strong believer that for those two reasons, one is employees are looking at how you behave and two, you control the resources. The starting point always has to be the top leadership team. You know, uh, I, I just, I, I love that uh, analogy of uh, the little kid falling down, looking at the parents saying, what just happened here and, and what should I be doing right now? Uh, because that is really the truth. And, and our employees, the people that follow us, uh, our tribes, uh, they're not children, but they're still looking at us like they were. And, and you know what? I, I just think that it's absolutely correct. So uh, I talk a lot about the inside track. You know, what's the best, the fastest, the smartest way to make something happen. Uh, and, and really it starts, it always starts at the top. It always starts with the senior leadership. Uh, and they're going to set the tone for whether it's okay uh, listen, I, no one would disagree that trust isn't a critical factor. Um, and you know, uh, I, I kind of take it for granted, but I can understand why you can't, you have to really search for it because you're not going to always get what you think. But, uh, at the same time, uh, you know, I, I also think that these senior executives, they need a lot of training so that when the kid falls down, they don't give the right response, the, the wrong response. A, a lot of parents, by the way, need the same training. You know, they, they start freaking out that, oh, my God, my kid fell down. This is horrible, terrible. You know, instead of, not a big deal. You're going to be okay. Let's just brush it off and let's try again. Uh, there are some people who are just better at that. And I'd say that, you know, so many of our leaders need to be moved in that direction. That's right. And, and by the way, I, I would distinguish the word training from policy. Because you cannot put a policy and say, Joel, you're a CEO of a company. Joel, from this moment on, you will trust your employees. You will give your employees uh, autonomy. It's not going to work. It's not going to work because you don't trust me. And if you don't trust me, the, the, it's, it's just not going to work. Uh, I can't force you to give me autonomy. So the, the, it's more about training than it is about uh, telling you what to do. And, and training, training happens slowly. I mean, let's, let's try and push the envelope a little. Let, let's try and give this employee 
a little more rope and let's see what happens. And, you know, I, I have a new logo for my company uh, as of last year. And the logo looks like it, it's two circles. And think about two circles with arrows. And on this circle, one circle, it says actions. That's half the circle. It's an arrow. And then uh, trust. So you can start with action and win trust. And then the more trust you have, the more trustworthy actions you get, or you can start with trust and expect those actions. And I think what you'll find is that they both work. So you can wait as a, as a leader, you can wait until your employees earn your trust. That might be a little slower than I'm going to trust a little and give more rope and give more autonomy. I'm not going to go all the way because I don't feel comfortable, but I'm going to trust some. I'm not going to start at zero trust. I'm going to trust some, and let's see how you react, how you respond, how you act based on this trust. And I think what you find out is, oh, wait, that, that trust was warranted. I guess I can trust this person more, and, and so on. Yeah, there must there must be kind of a rhythm though uh, for how much um, latitude to give somebody. I mean, I mean are, are there is there kind of a rhythm or a set of rules or is there a way to know, you know, give them this much rope and then give them a little bit more rope and a little bit more rope. I mean, you know, I mean you can't let somebody control financial decision making or or go out of control of financial decision making because companies operate inside of budgets and they have certain constraints. So how, how do they how do they make those determinations? So one, one of the tools that, uh, that I advocate for is something that I call the boundary agreement. And, uh, you know, I, and I have to tell you a story. I worked for a Fortune 100 company. I was a general manager of a $100 million business unit. And uh, by the way, I told that story in the book, in my seventh book, uh, Culture Starts With You, Not Your Boss. Um, and uh, th that's one of the stories there, even though it's not exactly using my name or, or any of the other people's names. But so I had a salesperson and she was calling on this large company and you know how the game is, right? She goes there, she gives them, she asks me what's the bottom line price. I give her the bottom line price for my components. Uh, she goes there, she gives them the bottom line price. If they're really serious, they get to the point where they say, okay, we need a lower price. She says, well, that's the walkaway price that I have. And they go bring in the general manager. They bring me in, I give them a better price, we close the deal, that's how the game is being played. Well, but I played the game differently. I said, you know, I'm going to tell you how much this component cost, really. And, and she was shocked because nobody ever shares cost information with salespeople. I told her how much it cost. I said, look, this is the gross margin, gross profit margin, under which my life becomes hell on earth uh, from my boss. So I don't want to get there. Now you have those informations. You go get the price. She went. She got a price that was uh, actually gave me a better margin. Uh, the company didn't believe it, so they called me. I flew over. It was actually in California. I flew over to Silicon Valley, sat with, uh, with the procurement, man procurement manager, and he said, okay, this is the price she gave me. I need a better price from you. And I said, no, you don't understand. She's the person who's going to give you the price. Whatever she gives you, I back up. So when you talk about how much rope and, and what's the cycle or the rhythm, my answer is... Uh, build a, a boundary agreement, tell that person who works for you, 
this is these are the constraints of my job my job is is the level above you these are the constraints of my job this is the my cost this is my gross profit margin targets and so on and let her operate within those that that's that's how you do it instead of uh, oh i'll tell you uh, if uh, what you're doing is right or not because i know things that you don't tell her what you know that she doesn't you know um I mean, that's a whole other thing is that, you know, you have to support your people. So, you know, like it or not, you know, you have to stay behind the person. You can't leave them out and throw them under the bus. So by you saying that, hey, listen, this person negotiated the deal, this is the deal, uh, that gives that person a lot more uh, incentive, confidence, and reassurance that they should keep doing more of the same. So uh, that helps that person trust you. So trust is a reciprocal deal. I mean, it goes in both directions, right? Well, so since you brought this up, trust is a two-way street, but not necessarily symmetrical. See, Joel, you may trust me less than I trust you, and that's okay. And, and this is why whenever I look at trust relationship between two people, I look at it as two separate relationships, trusting relationships. One between you and me, how much trustworthy do you think I am? And two is how much trustworthy I think you are. And it may not be symmetrical. Yes, they do help each other. They do reinforce each other, but they're not necessarily exactly symmetrical. Interesting. And it's okay that they're not symmetrical. It is. It is. You, you know, the, the first thing is you're my boss. I work for you. Uh, this is not necessarily symmetrical. We, we're in the same team. You may think that I'm more competent than I think you are. And that's okay. So you may trust me with something that I may not trust you with, and it's okay. That's interesting. That that's probably that that's probably a whole other discussion. But it, um, I mean, this really, you know, really what what I, my my takeaway. I just I, I go back to that uh, the what versus the how because that's the very simple component of this. That you know the company picks the picks the what what mountain what strategy what what platform what process. And then you can figure out how you're going to be successful with what tools we've given you or what assignment we've uh, assigned to you. That's so right. I, I really love that. And that, to me, that's the inside track. The, the track is that uh, just understanding the role of the people in a very clear way is very significant. And that's, uh, that's a really powerful takeaway from this discussion. Yep. So, well, listen, Yoram, uh, I want to say thank you for joining us. Thank you for sharing your insights and for, uh, participating here this morning. Uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you and, and really kind of getting a sense about the culture of innovation and how to develop that and how to bring the best out of our people. Sounds good. Thanks for having me, Joel. And uh, I, 2019 is going to be a great year. Trust me. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, your contact information is in the show notes and uh, people can be in touch with you. So thank you very much for, uh, for participating. Thank you. You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joe Block. Strategies to give your business the inside track. For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com. How about a shout out and a giant thanks to my podcast producer, David Wolf, and his team at Podcast and Radio Networks. Profit from the Inside simply wouldn't be what it is without David and his team. For more information or to learn how you can launch and produce your own podcast, reach out to podcastandradio.com. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.